0: the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Philcraft Survival Podcast. Today we're talking about the Second Amendment. We're talking about facts regarding AR-15s and AK-47s, mass shootings, uh, democratic debates, war gaming, Ruby Ridge and government distrust. Look, I don't want you guys to think to think this is some kind of rhetoric or propaganda for government distrust and me pushing an agenda. What I like to do is outline kind of the problems that I see and then come up with solutions. I also want to keep you guys informed. One of the the most telling things that I've witnessed over the last thirty days with the rhetoric that's coming out of the Democratic presidential candidate debates is the fact that many of these politicians are standing on a platform that's not founded in truth, that's more founded in disinformation, emotions, but not facts, but not science. And so when I hear the rhetoric, especially ones that are talking about infringing our constitutional rights, like the Second Amendment, because somebody's emotional, especially from somebody who potentially could be the next candidate for president of the United States, that gets my spidey senses worked up, and I I, I need to we need to start talking about this stuff. I want to keep you guys informed. Again, uh, just for perspective on this podcast, if you're just tuning in to the Phil Krause Survival Podcast, look, I'm not the subject matter expert on everything, especially political. Um, Uh, policy, political situations. I mean, I'm not a politician. Uh, I have a degree, a bachelor's degree in crisis management and homeland security. I have 20 years of extensive experience in special operations and counterterrorism operations all over the world, and more so a worldly perspective of what happens when you infringe or oppress uh, the people of your country and what happens when the the, the tides turn against you when a tyrannical government takes over. And so I, I'm going to offer that perspective in, in looking at the potential future of the, the scary times that we potentially are in. Look, um, one of the most disgusting things I've ever think I, I've, I've ever witnessed is uh, the, the democratic debate. Not because they're Democrats, because I want to hear Politicians' opinions. I, I'm interested in the left and right's opinions. I mean, for the first time when watching that debate, I actually thought to myself, well, Joe Biden, Joe Biden seems actually pretty legitimate and moderate as compared to the fringe. What is the fringe? The far left fringe. Uh, Beto O'Rourke is a good example of the fringe, where he said verbatim on that stage, hell yes, we're going to take your AR 15 your AK-47, with what I thought was astounding, cheers and applause from the audience. I'm like, are those avatars? Are those robots? Please tell me there's like a virtual simulator of human beings that look like human beings but are just avatars that are cheering right now. Because he framed it verbatim. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill On a battlefield, if the high impact, high velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that, yes, we're taking your AR 15s. And then he mentioned about, you know, from his hometown in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15 year old girl who was shot by an AR 15, and that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour. Obviously, taking advantage. Of an opportunity to seize a moment. Uh, You know, it made me think, it it actually made me think really deeply about the condition of our society. And I wondered to myself how does an intelligent human being, a semi or seemingly uh, intelligent human being that takes facts, that takes uh, analysis of a situation, create this fake propaganda? To make it seem like we're in a systemic catastrophic issue, you know in Philcrafts' arrival I, I always look at statistics. Uh, I think analysis, especially uh, when analyzing you know what you can do in preparedness to, to save your life, is important because without the data, without understanding the actual facts of maybe even the potential worst case scenario, then how probability wise are you going to enhance your chances? Of surviving, it can't be this this vague thing. It can't be this mysterious uh, conspiracy. It has to be. It has to be founded in facts. And so I thought to myself, how can an an intelligent human being who's running for the president of the United States, or at least in this point, uh, to be a candidate for the president of the United States, how can they say such things um, that aren't Laced and aren't founded in facts. If I was a, a foreigner listening to this uh, political debate on the stage, listening to the rhetoric, listening to the conversations and debate between each other, I would think that th- it's World War Three. I would think it's World War Three in the United States of America. I would think that everywhere you went, you would be in danger of being involved in a mass shooting. When if you look at the statistics, we're not even close. 40,000 people last year, 40,000, nearly 40,000 people, according to the CDC, were killed by guns. Two-thirds of that number, two-thirds, over 60-plus percent of that total number were suicide. In fact, out of that 40,000 people which about 14,000 died of actual gun violence. 14,000 died of actual gun violence. Out of that 14,000, how many do you think were from mass shootings? Well, if you listen to that political debate, you would think that 14,000 people were killed in mass shootings the last year. 340 people were killed, which is about .0085% were killed in mass shootings. And then you think, oh, well, it's it's still, it's still a systemic issue. And then I've seen a lot of media reports that spin it and they say gun deaths are up at a five at a all-time high. And that's true. Statistically, reaching 40,000 people a year, it's an all-time high. But guess what? What they don't tell you is gun violence has actually decreased And as an all-time low over the last five years. So the overall 40,000, yes, has increased. You know why? Suicides. That's why. But gun violence in the 14,000 is actually at a five-year low. But they won't tell you that. And they certainly won't tell you that only 340 people. And I hate to say the word only because I get it. There's a difference between... Gun violence in the inner city. Nobody really cares. The same weekend that the mass shootings took place in Texas, in Ohio, dozens of people were killed in Chicago. Dozens of people were shot and wounded in Chicago. Baltimore. In the inner city. But nobody really cares, right? Because that's not a political talking point. It's not popular as a talking point. It doesn't tweet well. But if you say on a stage, I'm taking your AR-15s and AK-47s, then it's popular. Because it's fringe. And that's the fear of our society today is that everything has to be on the fringe. Because if I call you a conservative politician I don't agree with, it doesn't get me any traction. But if I call you a Nazi, then people start paying attention. If I call the Secretary of Homeland Security a murderer of children it gets attention. And so the problem with the fringe is they don't understand that language and the construction of that language can start wars. Can start wars. Would you want a politician standing on a stage saying, which is overtly unconstitutional, I'm going to take your AR-15s and your AK-47s in an executive action I was surprised because every politician up there nodded their head in agreement. Joe Biden's the only one who was actually like, uh, you can't do that. That's actually unconstitutional. And then another female politician, which I won't start naming names here, but she stated, uh, Joe, you need to start saying yes and less no. Because just saying yes to uh, an executive action, which constitutionally infringes on individual rights of of this country... Um, is okay, because it just takes a yes. Oh, you want to go to war? Just say, just say yes. It doesn't take analysis of data, of information. You just do it. And that's the fear. When I heard him say that, and he says, we're going to take your AR-15s and AK-47s. Look, I, here's what I, what I want you to understand in, in, my, in my head. I understand that many Americans don't like firearms. I have plenty of friends and family who don't like guns. I don't, I don't gauge the status of my relationships with my family and friends based on your gun uh, status. I get it. I actually understand the emotion that's tied to innocent children and people being murdered by mass shooters because it's a very different animal than violence associated with crime, drugs, inner city, etc., what I don't understand is the misinterpretation of what AR-15s and AK-47s and equals law-abiding citizens and what that means. Because the politicians want to make and create laws that take away guns because they say the law-abiding citizen in this case is the issue because they own the guns. When statistically, less than 1% in some statistics, it's hard to get a framework for it, but 1% to 2% of all gun uh, violence deaths occur using an AR-15. 1%. 1%. So what's the rest? Pistols, shotguns, deer rifles, and the list goes on. So... My thing is like, okay, I get it. You you have an agenda. You you you're focusing on one aspect of that agenda. Then what's the problem? You know the problem with it's the same problem that I ran to in the military, which is nobody comprehensively wants to focus on fixing the issue because it's complex. War strategy is the same com, has the same complexities as fixing domestic issues, whereby. It's not just direct action, let's go in here, crush some bad guys, and then that's it. It has to be strategic. It has to be very comprehensive. So what does comprehensive fixing of our gun violence include? Well, I just told you, two-thirds of that 40,000 human beings who die in America every single year die of suicide taking their pistol, taking their rifle, taking their shotgun, putting it to their head, and ending their lives. I- I'm looking at the scale of systemic issues. Just looking at the numbers, but looking at the tragedy. you know, some people don't care about numbers. If I told you 300 people die in a 24 to 48 cycle uh, life cycle in America from the flu, would you care? Well, that's how many people die in a year in a mass shooting. But do you care? No, probably not, because you're like, it's the flu, it's different. Okay, I I got it. But what if I told you two-thirds of 40,000 people die from suicide? That should raise some kind of flag or some kind of alarm that we're involved in one of the biggest uh, mental health crisis of our lives, of humanity in the United States of America. And then when we think about like strategically, right, we're we're comprehensively trying to fix this. Well, what's the problem? Well, normal people don't wake up every single day. There's millions of guns in circulation in the United States of America. Law-abiding citizens don't wake up, grab their AR-15s and go to work and kill people. So they do it and and it happens very rarely. And when they do it, You know, with 340 uh, mass shootings, and I believe it's 370 plus casualties, people do wake up and do that. But then you ask yourself, you should ask yourself, why are these people doing it? Well, it's associated with mental health crises. No sane person wakes up and decides to murder children at a school. And so now the question is, how do we fix it, right? Because there's millions of weapons in circulation. So the solution, according to Democrats like Beto Work, is we're going to go in your homes and take your AR-15 and your AK-47. Why would you need that? It's a weapon of war. And what he lines out is really, uh, again, the misinterpretation and disinformation and propaganda that these politicians are feeding you because of their lack of education. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield. Okay. So I've carried a Ruger Mark II, which is a 22 pistol and, and at war. I've carried Glock 17s, Glock 9 Mills, Glock 22s, and 40 cal. Submachine guns, MP5SDs, the list goes on. Rifles, including M24, 308, Remington 700, essentially uh, sniper rifles. 308, 300 Win Mag gas guns and bolt guns. And so a, a weapon is not made in a um, escalation of force to be a safe weapon. Every weapon is meant to kill intentionally the target, whether that's a human being at war, because it's a bad guy, or small or big game. So not understanding that, you would think that the AR-15 is a deadly uh, weapon of war. What is a AR-15? Well, I could tell you right now, the AR-15, because it's been given this rep as a weapon of war, is a semi-automatic rifle. The As fast as you can pull the trigger, it will go bang, which is most guns. In fact, a Ruger Mini-14 which shoots about 750 rounds per minute on a full auto rate of fire, which is chambered in 5.56 times 45 millimeter, which is the same as an AR-15, has a 5 to 30 round factory box magazine, is the same exact gun. But you know what the Ruger Mini 14 is considered? A ranch gun. So if you take a ranch gun and you put a Picatinny rail on it, is it not a weapon made for war? The answer is yes, it is. Because any weapon that you take to war to defend life is a weapon made for war. And so herein lies the the overall arching issue. When it comes to the Second Amendment in the Constitution, here's my my understanding of the interpretation. And this is this is not just a, a, a one-dimensional view of the world uh, via my world. This is more comprehensive in understanding the totality of citizens being able to defend themselves against uh, oppressive um, dictators and governments. Tyrannical. If the United States of America did not have a balance in power, I mean, think about the politicians that are on the stage thinking they're representing the people. We're going to take your guns. When you say that, you're telling actually the majority of the country, the nation, that I'm going to come in there as big government and take your guns away. If we don't have a balance of power in this country of the people, we the people, versus the U.S. government, then we have nothing. Then we might as well be socialist. We might as well be communist. We have a balance of power in this country because the government knows better. They know better. If you're not infringing on rights, if you're not oppressing people, if you're not over-regulating human beings' freedom, then we don't have a problem. But how many cases in history where the government stood up against the people and killed its own people because they didn't have the ability to fight? But what do we do in foreign countries? What do we do in foreign countries when we're trying to help? You know what we do? We sell firearms or give firearms to the people of that country. We did it in Afghanistan. We gave SA-7, surface-to-air missiles, to the Afghan Mujahideen to fight against the Russians, to defend their lives against oppressors. We did it again in Afghanistan with the Northern Alliance. We gave them money, support, AK-47s, AR-15s to defend themselves against the Taliban. We did the same thing in Libya, where we went into Libya and said, you guys are uprising against Gaddafi, an oppressive dictator, and we are going to support you. How long did we let that go before we decided to support them? And how did they win? How did they turn... The tides against oppressive governments with weapons, with guns. So what's interesting is you have a politician who goes into an open forum in the public eye and says, we're taking your AR-15s and your AK-47s. We don't care. If it was a weapon made for war, we're taking it. He actually used this exact verbiage. If the high impact, high velocity round... When it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that. What weapon, what bullet isn't designed to do that? And so the fear and the rhetoric here is the long-term picture, the the continuity of divide here. You have a politician saying, I'm going to take your AR-15s and AK-47s because they're made for war. When I just told you statistically... More people kill themselves with a pistol, and more people kill other people with pistols and shotguns than your AR-15 or AK-47. So now we've confiscated the guns that actually don't mean anything. Will it change the numbers? The experts say no. The experts actually say it would not do anything. In fact, there's a whole bunch of debate on the assault weapons ban that absolutely did nothing to stop crime related to guns, violence related to guns deaths related to guns. And so what's next? Because when I tell you that taking the AR-15s and AK-47s is going to solve the problem and it doesn't, then what do I do next? If I'm thinking comprehensively and long-term, then I have a phase two. The phase two is I want to take your other guns. Let's look at semi-automatic rifles. Because if I could pull the trigger and every time I pull the trigger, it goes boom. And I could do that fast then that's a a weapon made for war because it's semi-automatic. And then the next thing you know, the only thing you have is bolt guns. One, it's a misunderstanding of what weapons are actually intended for. If I have a gun, I want an AR-15. Why? Because I want a Picatinny rail with as many accessories as possible to defend life against people who have guns and shouldn't have guns. A bad guy walks into an establishment with an AK-47, AR-15, a pistol, a shotgun, a slingshot, a car, a knife, a hammer, a sickle, whatever it may be. I want that AR-15 to shoot that bad guy in the face, to take him down. Because I know the only way to deal with evil and bad human beings trying to hurt or kill people is put them down. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Even saying out loud makes me uncomfortable for you that you have to hear that. But I understand the realities of war. I understand what bad people do to good people. But I do understand how to put them down. And I do understand what it takes. And so you want me to give up my AR-15 that I'm going to use to defend my life, that I'm going to use to protect my family? I don't think so. I don't think so. Luckily for me, Luckily for my family, I live in Arizona where the government of Arizona would never infringe on constitutional rights. But, I, but I'll tell you that any U.S. federal government entity that through policy infringes on these rights and then puts these law enforcement officers and the predicaments to compromise their integrity go against their own values, and enforce rhetoric that's now turned law is a dangerous precedent. To actually have a politician stand on a stage who's already a representative, a congressman, and say he's going to infringe on constitutional rights, it's scary for me. In fact, I'm more fearful for the damage that would be done to the U.S. government and the infrastructure and fabric of our nation than I am myself or the American citizens. Because we'll be okay. We'll get through it. You better believe that the the fabric and core of this nation is not afraid to stand up and fight against a tyrannical government. I started searching all over the internet because I wanted to get the White House's response to the rhetoric he was spewing. And they said that they were trying to come to an agreement to communicate about where is the agreement in terms. And, you know, before I did this podcast, uh, on my last podcast, I was talking about kind of some things that I was understanding more and more, getting myself educated about you know, universal background checks and even red flag laws. Look, red f- Look we're talking about fixing an issue. You know how you don't fix an issue? By creating more issues. A red flag law, depending on the state, is open to interpretation. Did you know that in most states that have red flag laws, I believe it's 17 now, you can go into a courtroom, talk to a magistrate, and get a basically get a, um, a warrant that's issued to serve the person that you want to take away their guns just by hearsay. So no due process. You're a spouse, you're a family relative of somebody who you think could be a danger to society or or to you, or to themselves. You can go in there, and then they would have to legally battle you for 6 to 12 months to get those rights back. No due process. So I'm a law-abiding citizen, haven't done anything wrong. There's no due process. You get a knock on the door, and they say, we're going to have to confiscate your guns. That exists now. And so the federal government's involvement in that is expanding and supporting those laws. Think about where, look, I love the state of California. It's one of my favorite states geographically. It's one of my favorite states. And I have good friends in in California and I love it. But that is the model of what a dictatorship looks like. Where every government policy has destroyed that state. Have you been to San Francisco lately? Have you been to LA lately? It's only a matter of time before that infrastructure collapses inside itself where it implodes. Crime is rampant. Violence, murders, rampant. Homelessness, rampant. Drugs, rampant. But who's talking about that? Because the central government that operates out of the confines of the in, the inner cities there uh, of suburbia the suburbia inner cities protected by their own the governor's protected he's taking away your guns but he's protected by state highway patrol detail of men and women with guns because they're a target right you, you got to protect the target are they a target Because innocent human beings in California who are law-abiding, who are just going about their business, are targets for bad guys, who are being exploited because they can't have guns to defend themselves, but the bad guys can have guns. An interesting statistic out of Chicago, where the majority, like 90 plus percent of all the guns that are used in violence there are taken from out of state or brought in from out of state. Is that surprising? Oh, so the gun violence, you mean those guys aren't going to uh, gun stores getting guns and then doing universal background checks and then committing acts of violence? Oh, that's surprising. That black market, which exists in most places with guns, exists in our country. The fear of universal background checks is a database. I don't want any American citizen being targeted via a highlight, via a PowerPoint presentation, at a Department of Justice meeting. Hey guys, well, what's what's the next priority? Well, you know, we've been looking at the data, and it looks like now we're going to start targeting a, a veterans of war because there's a exponential risk of veterans committing committing acts of violence, and you know, we got to target them and then take away their guns. I mean, that that's not that that is an individuality. That's that's what's going to happen with all this regulation which is inherent to regulation, period. The overburdening and regulating of American citizens, period, cause issues like this, where you don't have to be uh, a criminal. You could be law-abiding, you could be minding your own damn business, and then you drive into San Francisco with a pistol, guess what? You're a felon. You get rolled up, you're in prison. I've even heard of police officers turning in their own with other police officers because they own AR-15s within city limits. I don't know. If, it's just, if you're just looking at it um, and you want to scratch the surface, pretend like you're that cop in San Francisco. I'd want my own AR-15 uh, in city limits as well because I wanted to be able to defend life in one of the most crime-ridden cities in America. I talk to those officers all the time. And they're going through hell. They go to war every single day with drugs, with homelessness, with crime every single day. But they're arresting their own felonies, felonies. So if we look at mass shooting statistics, how bad is it really? I told you it's 340 events. Now, if we're looking at fixing that, what are we actually fixing? Let's say we fixed it. There's no more mass shootings. What have we begun to look at when it comes to gun violence and gun gun statistics that are telling us what really matters? Suicide prevention is one thing that I want to concentrate our efforts on. I don't want people killing themselves with guns. When I see politicians that are focused on the wrong things and then uh, potentially um, looking at infringing rights, it scares me. I just did a recent article on uh, Phil Kraft's survival about Ruby Ridge. Ruby Ridge was a site of an 11-day siege that took place in Idaho, Idaho. A guy by the name of Randy Weaver, who was a Green Beret in Vietnam, his immediate family, and a friend, a family friend, Kevin Harris, resisted U.S. Marshals. The FBI hostage rescue team was called in, and a very bad situation unfolded. The Marshals at the time um, had affiliations of Randy Weaver with the Aryan Brotherhood. There was some uh, drug and uh, weapons-related th- things that were going on. And the marshals decided to send in a recon team to observe Weaver on his property, pursuant to a bench warrant for Weaver after his failure to uh, appear on a firearms charge. So basically, a warrant was issued, and they decided to to do that recon. Six U.S. Marshals did the reconnaissance, and the Weaver's dogs identified those marshals out in their country, uh, out in their land, in Naples, Idaho. During that exchange, the marshals killed one of the dogs. They shot um, Randy Weaver's 14-year-old son, Samuel. Shot him, I believe, once in the shoulder or once in the back. Killed him. And then the friend, Kevin Harris, winded up pulling his bolt gun on the U.S. Marshals and shot and killed one of the marshals. They basically mobilized a strike force, which was the uh, FBI hostage rescue in, in a siege. And a FBI HRT sniper uh, winded up killing Weaver's 43-year-old wife. Shot her in the face while they were hold, while she was holding their 10-month-old son. Winded up shooting Randy in the shoulder. I think it went on his back. And then eventually... Uh, Randy Weaver and Kevin Harris were arraigned uh, after giving up to a actual a, uh, old commander of Randy Weaver's, and they had federal criminal charges, including first-degree murder and the deaths of Deputy U.S. Marshal uh, Deegan. Harris, who's the one who shot Deegan, was acquitted of all charges, and Weaver was subsequently acquitted of all charges except for the original Bell Condition violation for the arms charge. Uh, charge and for having missed the original court date. He was fined $10,000 and sentenced to 18 months. He was credited with with time served plus an additional three months. He was then released. During the federal criminal trial of Weaver and Harris, Weaver's attorney made accusations of criminal wrongdoing against the agencies involved in the incident, in particular the FBI, uh, the uh, USMS, Marshal Service, and the Bureau of Tobacco, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. At the completion of the trial, the Department of Justice Office of Professional Responsibility formed the Ruby Ridge Task Force to investigate Spence's charges. A redacted uh, version of the report was publicly released. Uh, both Weaver and the Harris bought, uh, brought civil suits against the government. Uh, the Weavers winning a combined out-of-court settlement of three point one million dollars in nineteen ninety five, and Harris being awarded uh, about three hundred eighty thousand dollars. I brought that up because, you know. Do I think the U.S. government is conspiracizing? um, Do I think they're plotting against the American people? No, I don't. But I've worked for the U.S. government. I've worked for politicians, and I've seen the involvement of politicians in, for example, defense-related, national security-related counterterrorism operations. And there is a huge, huge disconnect between... The U.S. government, policymakers, agencies like the State Department, and the U.S. military. Huge disconnects. In fact, when I was operating in Libya uh, for the U.S. military, the State Department, the U.S. State Department, actually kicked me out of their base, off their embassy. They moved us outside, which we were happy to do. I wanted to do that. And I remember... I actually remember receiving a shipment of equipment related to counterterrorism operations in that country. And we didn't even have rides to go pick up the equipment. And I went into the office of the State Department, which were all involved in the, um, uh, the Benghazi events. And so they understood that the military saved their asses. And this, this State Department logistics guy... Um, looked me right in the face and he said, I'm not supporting you. I said, what do you mean you're not supporting me? I'm like, I just need vehicles to go pick up stuff for the, for the the defense of the embassy. And he looked at me and he says, I'm not supporting you. I don't support military operations. And it took me back. I wasn't surprised though. Um, if you talk to a lot of the people in the U.S. embassy at that time, a lot of them, because they lived in their little bubble, didn't even know what the hell was going on outside their own gates. They thought we were the bad guys. That we are ruining the peace and sanctity after Ambassador Stevens was killed. That we were ruining the, after Sean Smith was killed, Tyrone and Glenn Doherty, uh, uh, Tyrone Woods and Glenn Doherty, That we were somehow messing up the system and messing up the relationship they had when Al-Qaeda... Islamic Maghreb is the one who targeted—or no, Al-Qaeda uh, Arabian Peninsula is the one who targeted the embassy, the annex. And so I wasn't surprised at his, uh, his body language. I mean, I wanted to choke him out on the spot because um, of his arrogance and, his, and just being an American in a foreign country, and he wasn't going to support us, and he was going to risk our lives because we had to do it at night instead— uh, even though he knew that, he still didn't support us, uh, wasn't surprising, but it was surprising. But that's that's the world in which we live. where a whole bunch of people live in this world and they want to pretend like everything is perfect and nothing bad happens. It's the same people, they they can't touch guns because they're like, guns are the bad, the worst things. And then what happens when a family member gets killed, gets mugged, or they get mugged, beat, raped, Raped, whatever it may be, all of a sudden they stand up and realize, oh, maybe I should be prepared. Maybe I should pay attention. And so I know the government's full of dumbass people, and we're not immune to that. Somebody asked me recently, they said, hey, man, you know, you've operated with all these special operations units and special forces. Um, are there bad apples out there? Hell yes, there are. At the highest tiered levels, of special operations, they are some of the dumbest, most ignorant people I've ever worked with. But it's not the majority. But now you get a dumb politician making dumb decisions, and what do you get? A recipe for war. A recipe for disaster. And so I don't think the government is conspiring against the American people. But what I do think is... We're only a couple stages or phases or steps away from uh, stupidity happening like what happened at Ruby Ridge. I've, I've analyzed that situation in, in depth, and I've even talked to guys from the FBI, and the one of the snipers, I won't even name him because he's still alive, uh, who took those shots. He had, he had perceived threats or perceived things that uh, were turned out not to be true. He's dumb. The commanders who launched the reconnaissance operation uh, I mean I've been doing recon my entire special operations career. If you do a reconnaissance operation in the middle of the woods and so, on somebody's land, you're running the risk of compromise. So what is their uh their contingency plans for compromise? Well, you run into two kids who are guarding their own property on their property. One that's an infringement all right, you're doing reconnaissance on that person's property, right? So you are uh, um, already illegal, uh, illegally be, being there on their property, and then you get compromised. What do you do? You kill them? And I understand the use of deadly force might have had to have been used, especially, you know, the FBI say that that guy uh, pulled the rifle on them, but it shouldn't, they shouldn't have been there in the first place. They should have used standoff, technical reconnaissance, the list goes on but putting six marshals on the ground in ghillie suits on that person's land with dogs? What do you think is going to happen? And so do I think it's a conspiracy? No, I think it's just dumb people making dumb decisions. But then that leads us to the question. Now what do we do? What do you do when you're in the FBI and then you get an all call and you're at a meeting and the government, because the president comes down and says, hey, We're going to execute these warrants across the United States of America, and we're going to go after all these law-abiding citizens, and we're going to confiscate their guns. We gave them the opportunity to turn them in. Now we have a list because of universal background checks. We have the database. Now we can figure out who we want to go after, when, and where. And you're a member of an FBI SWAT team, a regional SWAT team, and they tell you, hey, guys, you guys are going to go up. There's this target in Prescott, Arizona. His name's Mike Glover. You know how they uh, per, uh, perpetuated and, and made this situation with Randy Weaver even worse? It's because they advertised within the FBI, within the U.S. Marshal Service, that he was, an, he was a former Green Beret and he was dangerous. He was armed and dangerous. I want you to think about that. So now we have dumb people making dumb decisions at the political level, at the policy-making level. And they come down, they say, FBI guys, hey, you're going to go after Mike Glover. This dude is armed and dangerous. So now I'm a law-abiding citizen. But because I have guns that I haven't turned in, that I haven't allowed the government to be confiscated, if the government didn't mess with me, I wouldn't mess with the government. Now I'm a criminal. Now I'm a felon. Forget about the murderers in Chicago. Forget about the rapist in San Francisco. Mike Glover, who's a law abiding citizen, or whoever's on that list as a priority, highlighted in red, is the bad guy. Now you have to take all your assets, all your resources, and you're driving to the target and you're thinking, dude, this doesn't this doesn't feel right. Like I follow Mike on Instagram, he seems like a good dude. Like I I don't want to get in a gunfight with this guy. Like what did he do wrong? Oh, well, he didn't turn in his ARs. Oh. Okay, maybe maybe it is justified. But is it? And so I don't want my friends, my peers, the people I actually love and adore that work for the government, that work for uh, the defense of other people, first responders being put in a bad position and predicament because the U.S. government creates a law that they have to enforce. Think about how many people we put in prison as career felons strike three laws that are tucked away in prison right now For marijuana. I'm I'm not an advocate. I don't don't, uh, advocate that everybody should smoke marijuana. That's no big deal. Because there are issues with it. But some dumb politician. Made a dumb law. That didn't understand the second and third order effects. And it affected people's realities forever. And they have people in prison. For life sentences for marijuana. Again not focused on. What's really doing damage to our society. So do I think there's a systemic issue um, with the government? No. But do I think that the mistrust of the U.S. government is at an all-time high? Absolutely. And I tell you what, if the Democrats elect an official, every single one of them were on the same sheet of music, and they get put into the White House, you will see a very different United States of America. And it's not about... Just defending the Second Amendment. It's not about that. It's about defending our Constitution and our way of living as a free society. Tell me what country in the world is better than the United States of America. France? Don't think so. Sweden? Don't think so. Tell me what nation in the, in the entire world that's in a better position security economically than the United States of America. Not one. They all want to be us. I've been to many of them, dozens of them. And trust me, nobody wants to be who they are because they, know, they understand what freedom is. I don't want to be in another foreign country. I don't want to be like another foreign country. Even some of the best countries that you think are the best aren't the best. I appreciate this country and I'll do everything to, d- to fight and defend this country and I know there's a lot of people who would do the same. Something I want you to think about in preparedness that I've been talking about, uh, I talked about it on my last webinar, is the idea that mental modeling or wargaming is one of the best ways for you to improve your preparedness. A lot of people think, like, hey, how do I become more prepared? Where, well, I go to the range, I go hiking, I work on my rig. Yeah, those are all things that can enable your survival. But one of the most important things that we have the advantage to do is called mental modeling, this wargaming. You know, people in special operations, for example, uh, do something called wargaming that's done in isolation. We call it an ISOFAC or ISO facility, where if we have an operation or a mission, We'll go into isolation and start working out all the contingencies, all the, um, all the planning, all the support. We'll line it all out just to make sure we do a detailed plan to make sure that that uh, plan has the best success moving forward. And so you could do the same in your own head. And I was explaining to the guys and gals on the webinar over the weekend that you don't need a lot of money to do it. As a human being, having the cognitive abilities that we have, having the consciousness that we have, that allows you to use your past experiences to apply to the present and then forecast and predict the future. Hey, honey, so what would happen right now if the second floor, uh, if our kid's bedroom was on fire? What would we do right now? Uh, I I don't know. You know, I I think you should call 911. Yeah, but do I call 911 inside the house? Well, maybe we, we rendezvous at, at the front of the house. Yeah, but it's a second floor building. What if the, what if the, uh, the fire gets out onto the yard and it's more dangerous to be there? Well, maybe we have a secondary rendezvous point across the street. Yeah, but what do we do with the kids? How do we let them know? Well, maybe we just say it's a fire. But what if it's in the middle of the night and they're sleeping? Oh, what if we have an alarm? Yeah, but what if the fire puts out the alarm because the electricity goes out? Maybe you have a verbal word to, to say a pro word in distress like Irene, where they know that if they hear that, they have to move. And so as you work through these uh, scenarios and mental modeling, whatever it may be, you're going to figure out the deficiencies. Well, honey, we need an alarm. We need a fire extinguisher. We need to rehearse the pro word, Irene. And the list goes on. And mental modeling as an advantage in the conversation Get your creative juices flowing. And that's what's important about it. Because in preparedness, you want that um, to work out contingencies. I want to know like, hey, my ideas, my thoughts, how narrow they are. I want other people's expressed ideas because there might be another tactic. That's the benefit of what uh, we call the military decision-making process in special operations, which is you know, when you're, when you're coming up with an idea all the way to, from the highest level to the lowest level, you get your guys' ideas. Hey, Staff Sergeant Glover, what, what, do you, what idea do you have? Well, you know, I didn't want to say anything. Well, your job is to say something. So everybody's got a role. Everybody's got a buy-in on the tactic. And then you take that plan of execution and mental modeling and you apply it in a tangible way. Well, let's buy the equipment. Let's isolate, rehearse, repeat, and train all the things that we're talking about. And then let's rehearse it again and again and then identify what we're doing wrong. Who cares what we're doing right because the right is obvious, but the the wrong is what we need to fix. And then so you circle back and you fix the wrong and then you re-implement it it into the training sequence. Oh, this equipment, it really doesn't work. Well, now you flush it out, you know it doesn't work, and you, you put the right equipment in and you redo it again. We call this the culmination phase. All the things I'm talking about now is... Things that we talk about at our survival webinar. I actually will be at Highlands Ranch, which is South uh, Denver, Colorado, um, this Friday from six to eight PM. I'll do an hour about you know the survival seminar, and then an hour of stop the bleed. Thank you to uh, Five Eleven Tactical for allowing me to teach at you guys' uh, stores. It allows me to obviously travel and then find a destination where people are interested in hearing the message. And I'm excited about it because I I actually get to uh, talk to people from different parts of of the U.S. Also, I'm meeting up with Mike Pfeiffer from Last Line of Defense, which is going to be really cool. Uh, We plan on doing some Overland stuff, some long gun stuff on his uh, YouTube channel, but just really to hang out as well. And I like hanging out with Mike because Mike doesn't have military experience, but he has a good perspective as a civilian and implementing tactics for preparedness in his own way. He does it with uh, overlanding. He does it with mobility. He does it with his uh, weapons, with his uh, preparedness. And he has his own line of equipment, his own line of swag as well, which I rock uh, because I like rocking uh, people who I believe in uh, equipment and swag. Also, we're going to be launching overlandtraining.com soon. I wanted to tell you guys about that because overlandtraining.com, although it's, it's it's a break off of mobility it's important for us to talk about overland training. I mean, how many people want to get into overlanding, but they don't even know where to start. You know, you don't even know what rig to get, how to outfit your rig, the list goes on. Overlanding is becoming more mainstream. I mean, for the first time, REI is carrying rooftop tents for racks that they carry in REI, but there's not a lot of resources for good training. You know, all my military special operations career, I've done a lot of overlanding and mobility where you had to live and survive and even fight off this rig. That's great context, but the context matters for you as well. Because when shit hits the fan, you're going to have to defend life. You're going to have to fight for resources. You're going to have to get off the beaten path. Your vehicle, your go rig is going to be the extension of your rucksack and that's important. People ask me, hey, what's the first thing I need to get? A good set of tires and an extended fuel tank. I have a long-range America's uh, fuel tank on my new uh, Jeep JK, and that improves the fuel capacity by double. 600 miles per gallon or per uh, tank. My Dodge diesel pickup truck, which I always have because I can convert it to biodiesel, has an extended fuel tank as well. 110 gallons. If you haven't listened to it yet, listen to the Go Rig Challenge podcast where I drive from here to Canada on one tank of gas. My FJ40 Land Cruiser, my old Land Cruiser, which is the EMP-proof, electromagnetic pulse-proof vehicle, it doesn't have any electronics, has an extended fuel tank. I'm actually going on a trip um, down south on the border of uh, Mexico in a couple weeks, and I'm going to utilize that because, look, in a bug-out situation, no matter where you're at, whether it's getting you know going from urban to a rural environment you're going to need the fuel that is your capability you're only as capable as much as as much gas as you get on board also in addition to that we're starting our first tactical webinar first tactical webinar what is a tactical webinar well it's the opportunity for you to learn about mental modeling about mindset about tactics about everything online in a webinar format you could interact with us, you could talk, you could ask questions, I could activate your your mic, I could activate your camera, not on my own time, I'm talking about during the webinar, and then we can com- communicate to each other, like that, c- c- communicate to each other. I like this idea because if you're on the East Coast, it's a $1,000 in travel and lodging just to get to the West Coast to train with us. Well, this way, you could do it in your own home, understanding training applications, fundamentals of gunfighting, for example. And then apply that to your own training game. The onus is on you. If you want to be better at training, you just can't take a course and then just hope that somehow through osmosis that you're going to get that tactic or that that uh, benefit. You actually have to train and implement those strategies or those tactics into your life. Our first one, I believe, is going to be in October, mid October, October thirteenth, which is a Saturday, from nine to noon for three hours. Gunfighter pistol. It's ninety nine dollars. I'll be the host of it. I'll be teaching you gunfighter fundamentals. You'll actually be able to see my hands on the guns. Uh, I'll have video presentations. We'll be able to work through all of the stuff that we typically do during during gunfighter pistol, except for the execution phase, which that's on you. So looking forward to doing that because I think it's breaking new ground, especially in this world today. I mean, we're suppressed by Facebook, by Instagram, by every social media platform on the planet, I'm surprised iTunes hasn't uh, suppressed this yet. I'm, I'm just waiting for it. Well, we're, we're actually going to get back on the YouTube train because YouTube seems to be pretty good about protecting uh, individuals' rights and, and freedom of speech. Not too much oppression going on, so I think that's what we're going to we're going to focus on here in the future. I want to say a big shout out to Black Rifle Coffee, uh, Killcliff.com as well as TriarchSystems.com to be, for being our sponsors. BlackRifleCoffee.com, me and Evan go way back. Special Operations, owned and operated. One of the best companies I've ever worked with is Black Rifle Coffee. Use Philcraft 20 to save 20%. I like that Black Chinook because I, I like a dark, dark coffee. Black Chinook's one of my favorite coffees, as well as our swag. Who doesn't like Black Rifle Coffee swag? Also, check out Matt Best. Thank you for my service new book. He's touring the nation right now. Um, good cause, good books, all good stuff coming from Black Raffle Coffee. Also, this podcast is sponsored by KillCliff.com. They're big supporters and strategic partners with the Navy SEAL Foundation, advocates for the Navy, for the SEAL community, but also making an energy drink that's not going to kill you. I use the Recover, uh, which is the uh, post-recovery workout drink. No, uh has all the electrolytes, no sugar, very good for you. Without all the caffeine that's going to make you feel all jittery. Also, they just released a new line. Hopefully, I'm going to get some soon of the CBD. I'm a big fan of that CBD because whether it's anxiety, pain, or whatever it may be, CBD has a whole bunch of healthy benefits for you. Make sure you use Survival One Zero, Survival One Zero to save 10% at killcliff.com. Also, this podcast is sponsored by TriarchSystems.com. I just talked about it. Um, I'm actually. Uh, contributing to the Drinking Bros uh, group on Facebook. It's been fun because there's a whole bunch of shit-talking people on there, and I, I would uh, expect nothing less from the Drinking Bros community. I love them. And I posted about the Triarch System 17 Charlie. I run that as a full-size, everyday carry. One of the guys was like, I would never use that because I wouldn't use it at night because if you get in a gunfight at night, it's going to blind you. No, it's not. No, it's not going to blind you. Uh, every gun that has a barrel has has a blast of gas and flame that shoots from it. Um, so, yeah, don't worry about that. Uh, I run the 17 Charlie, uh, which comps at the barrel and ports at the slide, and it's one of the best guns I've owned. I put thousands of rounds through that gun with no issues. Uh, excited about running Triarch, uh, testing their new uh, uh, truck gun, which I'm going to bring with me to Colorado to get some some time on the range. But it's a folding. I have a law tactical folder which allows you to get off one round. But my Triarch is a 10.3-inch gun. I believe it's 10.3, but one of my favorite guns. the best, One of the best builds I've ever had. Uh, Make sure you check out triarchsystems.com and use Fieldcraft to save 5% on any build, which is pretty big for a build. Guys, uh, I appreciate you guys tuning in the podcast. You know, I want to do these types of podcasts because I want you guys to get my perspective, but I want you to understand that my perspective is based in reality, not based in a fantasy world. What I don't appreciate is politicians. Look, I get it. It's like a very um, difficult terrain to operate in politically for these guys and gals. But what I don't like is disinformation and being dishonest with the American people, spewing rhetoric, fake rhetoric, fiction, in order to get their agenda across. Uh, I I think politicians think they're representing the American people when they dictate what they're going to do especially when infringing on constitutional rights, but that doesn't look like a representative of the United States of America. It looks like a dictator to me. It looks like Gaddafi to me. And I will not allow this country, uh, whether it's uh, uh, you know an extreme uh, fringe operator in a political party or an actual politician making deliberate change and in infringing on our rights, I'm not gonna let that, let that happen. That's all I can say about that. Uh, Hopefully nobody in the FBI, nobody in the US Marshal Service starts targeting Mike Glover because of uh, this conversation, Um, because I'm very good at uh, counterintelligence and counter reconnaissance operations. Um, But I do wanna say that I appreciate the hard work of our men and women first responders and every um, branch of government and every element of government service Uh, What you guys and gals do for our country and our nation is super important, and I appreciate you. I've been there, and I'm over it, um, but I I appreciate that you guys are out there defending and taking care of our communities and our country. Thanks, guys. That's all I got. Hey, till next time, stay alert, stay alive, and we'll see you next time. Bye.